Oh, what a wonderful day already. Uh, one of my pastor friends texted me this morning and said the most wonderful day of the year. And I agree 100% with that resurrection morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is we're going to look at this morning. 1 Corinthians 15. I actually gave uh, Kurt the wrong text of scripture to read for scripture reading this morning. I meant John chapter 20, which had to do with the resurrection. But you know what? That's a pretty good passage of scripture. So I think we'll get by. But uh, you read the resurrection story later. We're looking at uh, Paul's uh, uh, bringing that to application here in 1 Corinthians 15. I heard a story this week or read it somewhere concerning a, a, a very well-known celebrity right now, a young lady who is very popular, who is uh, struggling so much with anxiety that uh, she, has, uh, she basically lives on marijuana. She has to stay high in order to deal with her, her anxiety. As a matter of fact, so much so that she started her own company, manufactures and sells the stuff. And she was on this talk show, and the host was saying to her, why are you so anxious? And she said, the world's horrible. Bad news everywhere. Every time I turn on anything, bad news, bad news, bad news, and I can't stand it. And so I, I stay high in order to be able to deal with my anxiety. The host pointed out that she has everything everybody wants. She is who everybody wants to be. She's beautiful, she's wealthy, she's famous, she's talented. And she says, I know all that, but I cannot live with life because of the bad news that uh, I face every day. Now, we can relate to that somewhat, can't we? There's a lot of bad news. Uh, if you can't find enough bad news on CNN, turn to Fox. You know, you, uh, the podcasts, the blogs, everybody's giving us bad news. And they're trying to top one another so you'll listen to them and read their stuff. So bad news is everywhere. But remember, we're not the only people that have had bad news. All, all generations have had bad news, including the first century here. Just think about it for a moment. These people Paul is writing to, these are individuals who, uh, who lived in a world of poverty, who um, there were in many, many locations there were more slaves than there were free people, and the, many of the free people were worse off than the slaves. At least the slaves had a place to sleep and eat. Um, the babies died at great regularity. Health Healthcare was, was primitive and virtually non-existent. Any time a plague or a virus went through any community, half of the people could die. Uh, war was everywhere. There was terrorists everywhere. People uh, very rarely lived beyond the middle age, uh, that we would call middle age, 30 or 40 years old. Uh, it's always been bad. There's always bad news. Okay, I've got you depressed enough yet? All right. Okay, I want to talk, talk about some good news. And Paul, yay, yes. And Paul starts off with a great line in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which most of you know means good news. I want to talk to you about not a good news, not a good piece of information. I want to talk to you about the good news. The good news that never changes. The good news that is always good news. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we look at that briefly this morning, Paul is building a case wrapped around the resurrection, but as he does so, he starts off by talking to us about the ingredients of the good news. First of all, in, he, he talks about how the good news is to spread. He says in verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, which you also stand, uh, in which you also stand, and by which also you are saved. Now look at those four things very quickly. The good news has to be proclaimed. Somebody has to give the good news. Secondly, it is received. Unless you receive it, it's just information. 
received in, in John chapter 1 verse 12, it says if you believe in Christ and receive him, you'll become the child of God. It, there's, a, there's a distinction there, so to speak. We know in James chapter 2, the demons believe and shudder and tremble, but they're not saved. So intellectually, they're informed. Emotionally, they're stirred, but, but their will does not turn to the Lord. They do not receive the message that is given there. And so he says here, if you receive this message, have you ever given a gift that was returned that they didn't want it? If you don't think that happens, go after Christmas to the Amazon return lines. <laughs> Half the gifts are going back. You know, somebody didn't want your stuff or whatever. Gifts, unless they receive it, it isn't much value. And so we have here a gift, the good news that has to be received, and in which also you stand. Now we think again about the world we live in. There's not much to stand on, is there? Uh, we, are, we are surrounded by things that, that we don't know where the security is. I've never heard more people in my life say this, I don't know who to believe. You know, with all the experts and all the politicians and all this, that, and the other, who do you believe about anything today? I've never known a time there's more instability than right now. And yet Paul says there's something in which we can stand secure. Something that never rocks, never shifts, never changes. It's the message of the good news that we have the privilege of standing on. And then he says, by which you can be saved. Verse 2, which are, you are saved. The word saved means to be rescued. Everybody needs to be rescued according to scripture. Rescued from sin, rescued from the, comp the co condemnation of sin. We are needing to be rescued, delivered, saved. I I'm listening to an audio book about the uh, Battle of Midway. Uh, the decisive, one of the decisive battles during World War II uh, and naval battles. Uh, one uh, pilot and his, uh, his gunner was shot down. They landed in the ocean. They survived. They got on a life raft. They are on that life raft for 17 days. The sun burning down on them. The, uh, no food except they caught one bird and ate the bird raw. You got to do what you got to do, right? They got some rainwater, kept them alive for 17 days. People flew over them, but never stopped to rescue them. They never saw them. 17 days. Finally, they were rescued. Do you think they were happy? Do you think they had joy? When you're rescued from peril, you have joy. If we even can comprehend to a little bit being rescued from the awfulness of sin what joy there would be. Our need, our great need, is salvation. Paul does add an interesting line, though, at verse, end of verse 2. He says, If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Is it possible to believe in vain? What does he mean? I think he's what, in this context, what he means is this. If the message I'm giving you is not true, then you've wasted your life. And so I want to challenge some of you today that might be testing that, checking that out. Is this message true? If it's true, embrace it. If it's not true, walk away from it. And Paul wants to show us that it's true. But before he tells us it's true and why it's true, he tells us what it is. So we see the content of the message of the good news in verse 3. And some people call this the, the gospel in a nutshell because it's just a, a very succinct, concise message about the gospel. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. First of all, two elements. Number one, Christ died for our sins. 
The key word of all things is this little preposition for. It means on behalf of. The message is that Jesus Christ died in our place. He died as our substitute. He took upon himself our penalty that we might be rescued from eternal damnation. That's what he's done. That's the content of the message. There's a lot of theories about Christ that are not true. People say, well, maybe he was just a martyr. He was a good man who meant well, but he, he died uh, for a cause that was not true. Some people say he was a fool. He was self-deluded. He thought he was God. He thought he was a savior, but he wasn't. Other people say, well, he was an evil man. He knew he was wrong, but he didn't mind deceiving other people. Others say he died by accident. He got carried away. He didn't mean for that to happen. And yet the scriptures tell us very clearly he died. The God-man came to die for us. No accident, no martyr complex. The Savior of the world, the sinless one, came to die for you and for I. And so he died for us on behalf of us. Verse 3, he says, according to the scriptures. And then he says in verse 4, then he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now as we look at the second element that Jesus has raised from the dead, I want to stop for a moment and remind you of why Jesus had to die for us. Christ died for us because we are sinners, because we are in, in need of a rescue, in need of a savior. We are sinners. Now I'm not, somebody said, well I know I'm not perfect. Nobody ever accused you of being perfect, did they? You know, if they, if they have, come talk to us. We'll show you where you're not perfect. Nobody is perfect. Nobody's talking about that. We're talking about the, the depravity of sin, the corruption of sin. You are a sinner. You are separated from God. You can never meet his standards. Secondly, we find that we're helpless. There's not a single person who can do anything to save themselves. You'll never be good enough. You'll never go to enough church services. You'll never sing enough songs. You'll never join enough places. You'll never do it because you're helpless. You cannot save yourself. So you're a sinner and you're helpless. And the gospel is received by faith alone. Just by faith. For the forgiveness of sin. I always like that little story of a, back in World War II. London was being bombed. And a father and his son was trying to escape the bombing. The father jumped down into a rather deep hole. And told his son, who was little, just a little boy, who was standing up above, says, jump. Jump to me, son. But the little boy looking down into the hole couldn't see his father. It's too dark. And he started crying, Daddy, I can't see you. I can't jump. I can't see you. But the dad could see him because of the fires going on behind. And he could see his son. He said, son, I know you can't see me, but I can see you. Do you trust me? And the little boy jumped and was saved from death. That's the picture we have here. You know, some of you might be saying, boy, I got some questions. There's some things I don't know yet. If I can unravel those questions, if I can fix all the mysteries of God and Christ and the gospel, then I'll come to him. Folks, that'll never happen. There's always going to be things you don't know. The issue is can Jesus Christ be trusted? If he can be trusted, we place our faith in him and we spring to him. Here's the second element that he wants to talk about, and that is that Christ is risen from the dead, verse 4. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Is resurrection important as part of the gospel? Well, it certainly is. I think a lot of times we think it's a throwaway, but it's at the very heart of the gospel. Folks, look. 
If Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, if Jesus Christ is still in that tomb, then we're hopeless. We have no help. We are, we're lost in our sins and nothing can ever change that. But it's because the grave is empty, the tomb is, is empty, that we have this hope that's found in Jesus Christ. If Christ died on the cross, but he didn't resurrect, then that's just a tragedy. That's not good news. That's a tragedy. Some, some guy got himself crucified. What's, what's a big deal about that? But if you're raised from the dead, you prove who you are, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. The resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. Anybody can say, I, I, I'm going to be resurrected from the dead when I die. Anybody can make some claim. Matter of fact, there's been many cults like that. And one of the, one of the best known um, utopian societies is found right up above Peoria. I don't know how many of you have ever seen Bishop Hill. Right above, around Galesburg, there's a place called Bishop Hill. There was a man named Eric Jansen who started a, a movement, a cult of sorts called Jansenites. And it was, uh, it was all that you expect of a cult. But he claimed to basically be a messiah. And yet uh, his cousin didn't agree with him and shot him and killed him. Well, the people hung around, his people, his followers, for three days expecting a resurrection. When it didn't happen, guess what? The Jansenites are a museum piece today. You can go by, by the way, Bishop Hill, you can see the whole story. It's pretty interesting. Take you about 15 minutes to see the whole thing. But it didn't, he didn't raise from the dead, and so he's just a piece of history that most of you have never heard of. Jesus Christ proves who he is by the resurrection. And that's why we're here today. Let's take a look quickly, though, at the proof of the gospel, verses 3 to, five, three to 8. How do we know he raised from the dead? Paul gives us three evidences, and I want you to think about these carefully. Number one, the scriptures. Twice he says in verses 3 and 4, according to the scriptures. There are literally hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, the coming of Christ including his death and his resurrection. The possibility of anybody fulfilling all those prophecies is astronomical, unless it was true. And so Jesus Christ fulfilled those prophecies, and so he, he met with the scriptures, he was in agreement with the scriptures. Second piece of evidence is eyewitness accounts. In verse 5 he says, and, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and all the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. You know, many saw the resurrected Lord afterwards. And yet people still object to the, to the fact that Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead. Historically, there have been many other options thrown out there. People have said, for example, that Jesus didn't really die. He just swooned. The swoon theory. I've always liked that one. Think about it for a moment. Jesus Christ was beat near to death, crucified, stabbed with a sword, wrapped up in 100 pounds of spices and, and wrappings, thrown into a tomb for three days, no food, no water, and suddenly started feeling better. <laughs> and then he got up, ripped off the bandages, came up, moved a, a several ton stone uphill, walked out, beat up the Roman guards, and walked to his disciples and appeared to them so good, so glorious, that they thought he was resurrected. You believe that? I got some, uh, some investments for you. I'll talk to you about it later. That's nonsense. How ridiculous. How much faith would that take? Others have said, well, the disciples just hallucinated. 
so that's why he talks here. He didn't, hallucinations can happen, but mass hallucinations to a people that didn't even believe that he was going to resurrect from the dead, that doesn't happen. Many dozens of people, 500 at once, saw him. Maybe the disciples lied. This is the biggest one. Jesus didn't say what he said. The disciples made it all up. They created Christianity. That's the biggest one that you'll find today in the secular world. Well, that doesn't pass water much either because, listen, the disciples' lives were changed. They, they at, that, at the point before the resurrection, they were defeated men hiding in an upper room ready to be captured and killed themselves. But, they were res but when Jesus resurrected, their lives were transformed and changed. And they went out and won about a third of the world to Christ. They were good. Some say, well, they were good men, but they were deceived. But what a farce that would be to be a good people and go out and lie about the message of Christ. And think about this too. They all died for this lie. A lot of people will die for causes, but how many people die for a lie? And how many people tell their, their wife and their children and their grandchildren about this and let them die for a lie as well? What kind of people would that be? Certainly not the people we see in the New Testament. And then let me add one that Paul didn't mention, the experience of countless believers for 2,000 years. Think about it for a moment. Hundreds of millions of people in every context, in every country, in every ethnic group, in every language and tongue and whatever, all over the globe for 2,000 years have been transformed by the saving power of Jesus Christ. Now, if one or two people were changed, no big deal, but thousands, hundreds, millions. Yesterday we had a work day, and we thank everybody here that worked indoors and outdoors. But let's say yesterday I had the coronavirus. And I, while I was out there, I found a rock on the ground that looked very interesting, and so I, I tied it to the top of my head. And after I tied it to the top of my head, my, my virus went away. And I'm coming to you to give you the cure. It's a rock on your head. Tie it to the top of your head, and you'll be cured. And you would look at me and say, that can't be. And I would say, you can't argue with my experience. It happened. And they said, how many other people has it happened to? Well, nobody. But, eh, okay, you got it. A hundreds of millions, maybe billion people have been saved and transformed by the, the grace of Jesus Christ. That's a powerful evidence, folks. It's not in a corner somewhere. It's all over the world that people have come to Christ and been changed. But let me add one more thing. We looked at the message, its content. We looked at the proof. Very interesting ending of this whole thing, the purpose of the gospel. I want you to see it. Paul says in verse 8, And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This word untimely born is translated that way here in the New American. In the King James, it's one born out of due time. Almost every translation has something similar. None of them capture the essence of this word. This word basically means abortion. It means an unborn fetus. It became a vulgar term in the first century, as often slang happens like that, and people would use that word and call each other names by it. And Paul is taking that to himself, and he's using it in that way for himself, and he's saying, as one who is repulsive. The, the word in that context meant a repulsive freak. Can you grab that? He said, here I am. I'm nothing special. The Lord didn't save me because of my greatness and my intellect and my abilities. He saved me when I was repulsive. 
When I was, I, I, I deserve nothing. That's what the word means. One untimely born, one repulsive freak. Hope that shocks you a little bit because it's exactly Paul's intent to shock you in that regard. And yet, what does he do? Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Three times grace. You see what he's saying? What is the purpose behind the gospel? To save us from our sins and to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I was repulsive. I rejected him. I tried to kill the saints of God and killed some of them. I deserve nothing. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Salvation is purely on the basis of grace. Not our good merits, not our abilities, the grace of God. This man, he says, I was a repulsive freak. I deserve nothing. But Jesus Christ transformed me by his grace, and by his grace I am what I am. The gospel is a gospel of grace. It's a gift. God gives those who will come to him. I finish it off with a little story of some years ago. A young teenager named William ran away from home. He didn't want to be under the authority of his parents any longer, so he ran away from home and took his girlfriend with him. And they got out there nobody could find him but there's a little interesting wrinkle to that William had not been feeling well and he had gone to the doctor a few days earlier and they did some tests and the test results came back that William had an advanced fast moving form of cancer and if he wasn't treated almost immediately he would die very soon it, but it was treatable if they could find him they couldn't find him and so not only did his parents and loved ones go out to find him, but the authorities were every row trying to find William. And William was running away thinking they were trying to ruin his life when they were trying to find him to save his life. I think that's a fitting picture of humanity. People are running from Jesus Christ thinking he's trying to destroy their lives, trying to ruin them. And Jesus Christ is offering a message to transform us, to change us, to forgive us, to bring us into his family, to be his beloved forever. And it's all true because he died for our sins and was resurrected from the dead. If Jesus Christ is not your savior today, let me say it one more time. He's not trying to ruin your life. He's trying to save your life for now and for all eternity. And if you don't know Christ, this is the day. Resurrection morning, wouldn't that be wonderful? Resurrection morning would be the day you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this most wonderful day of the year for the Christian resurrection morning. How we rejoice in that. And Lord, we give you praise. And we pray, Father, for those that are under the hearing of the word this morning here and throughout the world, really, who are hearing the gospel, perhaps, and hearing the good news of, of the resurrection. Lord, if they don't know you as Savior, Father, draw them to you even now. Open their eyes to your truth. Bring them to, your, to the faith by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.